millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath it. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is the video game franchise Fallout, which means, of course, we're going to be talking about 1950 sci-fi, we're going to be talking about the evolution of the RPG, and I don't mean rocket-propelled grenades. I'm also going to be, with regret, talking about the most devastating part of World War II, leading into the defining era of the latter half of the 20th century, the Cold War and the threat of nuclear warfare. So yeah, I had to transition there from some pretty fun stuff to some very, very serious stuff. So I'm going to let you into a little secret. Why am I doing this? Why are you doing this? Because I had somebody called James Barr. James, shout out to you this time round. I admire your luck, Mr... James Bard. James is an example of somebody who has stumbled across the podcast years after I've been doing it. And he said, oh, you know, I'm loving it. I'm binging it. And you say you want suggestions. So here they go. You know, here come the suggestions. And a load of them came my way, courtesy of James. Thank you very much, James. And because he's going through, he's starting at the beginning and moving forwards. I mean, when I say the beginning, again, another little secret. If all you've heard is me sort of talking about pop culture, that's the way this particular podcast has been going for maybe two years. But Previously, in another version, kind of pre-pandemic, previously on Condensed Histories, myself and Greg, who is now the editor, Oh my God, it's a dream! Greg and I used to have chats about various different topics and sort of bounce things backwards and forwards. So, as COVID has changed the world, it has changed this podcast, but the podcast itself has to have been running six or seven years. Maybe, maybe a little bit longer. I don't know. Greg and I are a little unclear about the actual time of this. So, yes, in the case of James, he probably doesn't know about these other ones. They don't exist on things like Apple or Podomatic, but I have noticed that they do still exist on some format somewhere. Not all the episodes, but some of those are earlier episodes, earlier format episodes. Feel free to listen to them. We had a lot of fun making them, but it is quite different. So because he's going through from the beginning, like when I was talking about Lord of the Rings and ABBA, some of his suggestions I had to sort of like tweet back to him. Actually, I've already done that one. Hope you really enjoy that one. But 
he did say Fallout, and it realized that I hadn't actually done one about video games for quite some time. So I thought, yeah, yeah, let's let's do Fallout, which is a classic example of what I'm trying to do here because it's set in a post-apocalyptic future. So what on earth can it tell us about the past? But it can. So come with me on a journey. and Come with me if you want to live. James, I hope you enjoy this. Let's get on with it. Now, I have actually mentioned some of this stuff in the past obliquely, but we'll get there. So the thing about Dungeons and Dragons, did a whole episode on that, is it invented a whole new type of game. I mentioned things like tabletop wargaming, Kriegspiel as it was known and invented by the Prussians in the 1700s and that evolved into these sort of more complex dice-based simulators of situations. Now, it could go in one direction where you're literally still recreating battles in essence using dice and figures on a tabletop, that's tabletop role-playing game or, or tabletop combat or something like that. So classic of that would be Warhammer, which I occasionally do episodes on. Or you've got something like Dungeons and Dragons. Now, the Wizards of the Coast would want me to tell you that actually Dungeons and Dragons is best when you've got when you buy their figures and perhaps create little dungeons using sort of floor tiles and please buy all our products. And if you like, that's the problem that Dungeons and Dragons has compared to Warhammer in the sense that I politely disagree with that. I respectfully disagree. <laughs> Look, you play games any way you want to. The point of a game is to have fun. And if the way you have fun is different to the way I have fun, you do you. But personally, because I like both of those things, I love the fact that Dungeons and Dragons, it can all be in your head. And I'm going to say that your imagination is going to be better than any model sitting there on the table. There's no life I know to compare with pure imagination. So, yeah, personally, you might sketch things out like a little little floor plan, a crude, rudimentary floor plan so people can understand exactly what the layout of the room is or something like that. Fine, but I don't think you need a load of figures for that. By contrast, you can't play a game like Warhammer without actually having lots of figures there. You can't just have it in your mind that you happen to have a a bunch of Stormcast about to smash into some Skaven or, or whatever. You Actually, everyone needs to see what's going on on the table, so you're going to have to buy that. So, from the point of view of the makers of Dungeons & Dragons, really all you need is some dice and the rules. And there are different types of rules, rule sets, fine, but those are books, and those books kind of cost about £25 each. So if you spend let's say 100 pounds, you've kind of got all the books you could ever need to take people up to level 25 or level 50 and yeah, have fun with it. Go for it. You don't need to spend another penny on this game ever again. But with Warhammer, there's new figures come out, new rules come out. And so you have to buy the rule books, you have to buy the army list, you have to buy the actual figures themselves. There's a lot of different ways that the company can make money from you. And obviously, if you're going to paint this stuff as well, then buy the paints too, if that's your thing. You don't have to do that. But role-play games were very popular in the 70s and into the 80s, again, made reference to this in Stranger Things, and Stranger Things has created a sort of an interest again from casual people into Dungeons and Dragons. A shadow grows on the wall behind you, swallowing you in darkness. It is almost here. What is it? What if it's the Demogorgon? Good for you if that's how you got back into it. 
But also in the 1980s, you got the advent of home computing. And so you started to get some video game, adventure game type things, almost Dungeons and Dragons on a hard disk. Now, obviously, if we're talking about, let's say, 1985, the graphics were rudimentary, to say the least. I remember playing Bard's Tale, which was an attempt at sort of 3D, and at the time it blew my mind, blew everybody else's mind. Today it would be seen as ridiculously rudimentary. I'm talking about the original one, not the remake. And yet there was this clear synergy. Let's face it, a bunch of sort of teenagers who weren't into sport sitting at home, either playing D&D or sitting at home on a computer, those two people are basically the same market. And therefore it wasn't long before computers. Yes, they did platformer games. You know, we all know about the Marios of this world, but actually role-playing games, fantasy simulators, if you like, they came out surprisingly early. Now it took years for these things to start getting as good as the likes of Dungeons and Dragons. And what we get in 1997 is the first Fallout game, which was inspired by a kind of post-apocalyptic role-play game called GURPS. Let's not go into that. But the point is Dungeons and Dragons wasn't the only game out there. My favorite actually was MURP. See, the dogs are, the, the RURP at the end is all about role-play, RPG, role-play game, as opposed to rocket-propelled grenade. So the idea is this, that you have a character and you take them on a journey. And the more experience of life that they have, they get stronger. So perhaps the most notable example would be a wizard. You're a wizard, Harry. A level one wizard would be extremely weak in every possible sense and doesn't know particularly powerful spells. But by the time they are level 25, you've probably been playing that character for literally years. And because you keep using the same spells and like I say, gaining this experience, then you've now got these most super powerful spells out there and you're almost a demigod. And, and so all that hard work paid off. Now, me talking about leveling up, level one, experience. You have to be familiar with this because this all comes from these role-play games like Dungeons and Dragons. And yet that is the standard way you improve a character in video games. They just wholesale lifted that part of a different type of game system and implanted it digitally. So nowadays, you know, you quite often get little noises when you level up. Or when you sort of upskill something and you sometimes get like a, particularly one of the genius things for the Modern Warfare series of video games, the Call of Duty Modern Warfare, is Online multiplayer had been used for years, but suddenly they came up with the idea that you can upgrade your character. They don't run faster, but they unlock either new weapons or unlock new stickers. So you get to see the sort of like stickers or images, which shows that I'm a higher level than you and I'm awesome as you get the replay of me killing you or something like that. So suddenly this fundamental core of paper-based role-play games is now the core of an entire genre of video games, and that's what Fallout started out as. It was almost like the, the graphics were relatively rudimentary, and it was almost like you were looking down on a very detailed map on a table with little figures on it. 
it wasn't kind of like a first person shootery so 1997 that was just beyond the graphics of the time people loved fallout however because like a proper role play game there were multiple different ways that you could solve situations you could be the shooter you could talk your way out of things you could just be you know hugely muscular and, and use lots of melee attacks all these like different solutions different scenarios you didn't have to go down the same corridor you could travel the world and discover new things and go on little mini quests as you were going on the main story missions as well it's got all the things that make a good role play game work and at that stage 1997 the kind of post-apocalyptic blasted landscape full of mutants and giant rats and things like that was still pretty fresh by now it has been way played out so let's not worry about the fact that Fallout already was being influenced by other things, but it in itself has influenced other things since its release. The second Fallout came out a few years later and still again had the same basic format and style. But then the name and the intellectual property rights moved to a different company called Bethesda. And in 2008, Bethesda launched Fallout 3, which caused basically a sensation. Friends, your future may not be as secure as you think. Where will you be when the atomic bombs fall? Now, I get a chance to talk about Bethesda. And Bethesda are one of these companies which has had very, very high highs and very, very low lows. They have two main role-playing titles. One that they created themselves the Elder Scrolls, and one that they obviously had to buy from another company, now defunct company, Fallout. Now, 2022, StarCraft's coming out. It's the first new IP they brought out in a very, very, very long time. But the thing is, I was first introduced to Elden Scrolls 3, and I was blown away by it. We had a fully 3D environment. It was all first person. And just sort of everywhere there was content. And, and we're talking about sort of 2004 or something. That's when I first started mucking around with it. And The Elder Scrolls Three, I could tell that it was at the very limits of what could actually be possible in terms of the graphical abilities of the Xbox and, and what have you. And I liked it, but it was so dense and you're so under-leveled. I remember the first thing I came across was kind of like a grub like a, a worm, and it was attacking me, and I was not doing a good job of beating it. I played that thing for maybe about 10 hours, let's say, and I just, I just didn't click with me. And the run-throughs, well, the speed runs, they could all do it in like, whatever, four minutes or something, and it's like, I don't even get what you're doing here. And it just, it was too much game for me. It almost gave me so much freedom I just didn't quite know what to do. But when you get to the fourth Elden Scrolls game called Oblivion, that came out in 2006. And there's a wonderful photo, a little staged photo of me playing it, cuddling in my arms, my newborn son. And he's sort of staring at the screen, obviously not knowing what's going on. And for a lot of people, it was Oblivion that really started people's love affair with the Bethesda. I mean, it existed before, don't get me wrong, like I said, Morrowind is the name of the third one, but it was Oblivion that kind of reached out into a bigger amount of potential buyers of these sorts of games. And Oblivion held your hand just enough that while, yes, you're running around all over the place, you're not completely lost either. And I actually finished that one. 
The other key thing here, because they also do this in Fallout 3 and Fallout 4, is you were able to go to an area. Basically, the first time you arrived at that area, it set the monsters in that area to your level. And once I knew that, I was only like level four or five. And it's like, oh, okay. Well, I'm going to gain the system a little bit. And what I did is I just ran like a giant donut shape around the entire world. So in other words, I knew that there was sort of like a donut area where things would be always quite low level. And so it's almost like a safe haven, if you like. And I did exactly the same Fallout 3 too, as well, I mean. So the thing is this, Fallout is a mighty game. It is a great game. Fallout 3, I should say. But I much prefer the Elder Scrolls series because the reality is I get with Fallout, it's they're making a choice and it's a good choice that because everything is a blasted wasteland, that all the guns are kind of run down and you're having to spend time upgrading them so that they're better. And the currency is bottle caps and all this other stuff. So everything's kind of decrepit and rugged and the overall art design and concept is kind of greys and browns and beiges because that's kind of what it would be. Whereas with Oblivion, it was a kaleidoscope of colours. I mean, literally, there's one bit where you can go into a wizard's painting in a wizard's tower and then you literally fight a level where it's normal kind of enemies like trolls, for example, but they're actually painted. They put on a different skin to them, so they actually look like somebody's hand painted them. I mean, you would just never get anything like that in Fallout. So my full disclosure is this. I finished Fallout 3. I never finished Fallout 4. And as for Fallout 76, well, we'll come on to that in a moment. And there's also Fallout The Vault as well. I prefer an area where if I'm rooting through a chest, I get a magic sword or I get gold coins or I get a jewel rather than more bottle caps and some slightly irradiated soft drinks. So, yay. Now, the other thing that people got very angry and they did end up patching this out is right at the end of Fallout 3, you by then have a friend who is a super mutant. Basically, think of the Hulk. That's kind of what he looks like. And he is immune to radiation and you meet lots of their enemies that are like that and they're very big and dangerous and either they've got guns so you need to get close or they are very dangerous up close. So they're a really considerably nasty enemy. Not as bad as the Death Claws, obviously. But anyway, I digress. The point is this, at the end, you have to make a super sacrifice. And so you will die going into this room full of radiation. Pressure, you're going to have to turn the purifier on. Do you understand me? It has to be turned on now. If I'm reading this right, I'm afraid there are little levels of radiation inside the chamber. And it's like, why? Why do I have to make the ultimate sacrifice? I'm literally standing next to a super mutant who is immune to radiation. Why can't he go in there and flip the switch and solve the problem? Why do I have to make the ultimate sacrifice? I'm happy to make the ultimate sacrifice if that was the only way, but clearly there is a non-lethal solution standing next to me. And actually, if you talk to him, he says, oh, you know, sorry, I can't help you on this occasion. Like, what? Why are you chickening out now? Oh, really? Just leave me. I'm an old man, Doctor. I've had my time. Well, exactly. Look at you. Not remotely important. But me? I could do so much more! And actually, there was a later patch, as I say, where the publishers admitted that they might have got that wrong. Now, the thing with Fallout 4 is a lot of hype came out with it. 
But the thing is, they're still using the same graphics engine and the same way to build the worlds as they were more than a decade earlier with Morrowind. Remember I said Elder Scrolls 3. Graphics have got a bit better and things like lighting and textures have got better, but it was still basically using the same engine. Whereas by comparison, the same year Fallout 4 came out, you got The Witcher 3, which is one of the greatest roleplay games of all time and was graphically so much better than Fallout also, there are all these sort of fetch quests going on there. And again, we're in, it's a different blasted apocalypse, but it's still another blasted brown and gray apocalypse area. And so I never finished Fallout 4. Then there is this online game, which I you know, remember Fallout The Vault. And Fallout 76 is sort of like an, an online version of Fallout, which was so buggy Basically, people ran from it for a mile. I know one person who enjoyed it and endured, and I've heard some people saying coming back to it like two, three years later, it's, it's got better. I'm sorry, I'm not going to wait for a game two, three years to finally get an average game. So Fallout has had its highs and it's had its lows, and one of the big problems is Bethesda really needs to up its game when it comes to its engine. Here's hoping for StarCraft. Well, we'll see on that one at the time of recording. It hasn't come out, but it does look potentially quite good. Their imagination and sort of like the different groups you can join, and generally one of the key things in all of the Fallout series is nobody's per se is the good guy. It's a little bit like Warhammer. They all have their problems. Some are more noble than others, but it's unlikely that the choices you make kind of fit your character and fit your mood and fit your personality, which is what role-playing is all about, after all. Now, the thing, the really great thing about the Fallouts, particularly numbers three and four, is this kind of tone that they've taken. It is a serious game, but you've got the Pip-Boy and you've got Vault-Tec and all these kind of things. So basically, in the third one, the first level is basically a tutorial level where your father is letting you grow up inside a vault. So you don't know about the outside world yet, and you're all quite, it's all quite nice in the vault right now. Your father is voiced by Liam Neeson. I think we need to talk. I've been hearing things. Things that have happened out there. And it's good, but the thing about the vault is, like I say, there's kind of a sly sense of humour to it all. They could have gone all sort of like shiny and gleamy, like, you know, imagine something like the Empire from Star Wars, but instead, everything's kind of sort of steampunk. Well, maybe not steampunk, more diesel punk. Greg, I don't know if he's going to jump in at this point and tell you the difference between those two. That's a story for another time. But... Ah, uh, he's a big steampunk fan. But the point is that it's got a distinctive style. It's almost like, while the technology is clearly more advanced than what we have today, in terms of the styling and recordings and taste in music and clothes, everything stopped in the 1950s. And so it has this very distinctive style to it. And indeed, the Pip-Boy, that is basically your way into menus and maps and things like that, is, you would say, well, surely that's like your your smartphone, and I guess it is, except this thing is a big bulky device. It's almost like a small portable TV with some big industrial knobs on it to sort of like twiddle and move and stuff like that. In fact, you can even play games on it, which is quite clever. So you can play a game inside a game. How meta's that? but it takes up most of your forearm. And I would assume it weighs a couple of pounds in terms of weight as well. So 
yeah, it's the sort of thing where, yes, today we've got something better than that, but also we don't have AIs with robots or laser guns that you can run around with. So it's a really distinctive, wonderful style to it, but it's this 1950s styling that really plays into the Cold War. And one of the things you have to be aware of, environmental hazards, is there are times when there are no enemies around, but there's radiation around. That radiation can hurt you or harm you. And so you, you have to be aware of the dangers of living in a post-apocalyptic world. So let's talk about the world of like nuclear weapons and these vaults, these basically bomb shelters that people were living in in Fallout. Now, the, the other thing is that every vault is different and you get references to some weird vaults. Like, as I said, in the vault in Fallout 3 that you come out of, Everybody's just living there, generation after generation. That's fine. In Fallout 4, however, it's a smaller vault and everybody's in suspended animation. So you were one of the first people to go to sleep when the nuclear attacks came and you're one of the last to wake up and you've got no idea what's going on because literally the last thing you remember. And indeed, with that one, the first level of that one is it's normal. It's pre-war, basically. And one of the first things you get to do is go back to that area after the war and just see how blown out and blasted and desolate it is. You can even find the ruins of your own home. And because you'd actually played it when it was all in one piece, that's really quite powerful. You maniacs! You blew it up! Atomic bombs. I know a bunch of scientists who say they loathe the term atomic bomb because everything is made out of atoms. Therefore, technically, a hand grenade is an atomic bomb because it's it's made of atoms. What they mean is a nuclear bomb. It is the splitting of the nuclear nucleus of atoms, specifically very large atoms like uranium or plutonium, which lead to this massive release of energy, which is the chain effect that leads to an atomic explosion, a nuclear explosion. Sorry, I just did it again there. Oops. So the thing is, this all started with Albert Einstein and the probably the most famous formula in the world, E equals MC squared. What does that actually mean? It basically means energy is the same as the mass multiplied by celeritas. Celeritas is just an extremely large number. Usually it's equated to the, to the speed of light, which is squared. In other words, what it's saying is that the mass, literally the atoms you are made of right now, whatever your clothes are made of are also made of of actual mass and matter okay all of that is basically stored up energy and if you could split the mass really quickly it releases the energy and that's incredibly hard to do but it is theoretically possible now i don't know I, you don't want this to be a four-hour podcast but there was a race during world war ii people understood the potential to unleash the atom could be a game-changing weapon. And in World War II, all sides wanted a game-changing weapon. Now, interestingly, you get the German scientists miscalculating how much fissible material, i.e. something like uranium or plutonium, you would need to guarantee a chain reaction. They basically got the sums wrong, which meant that you needed far more of this material than you actually needed for a bomb, which made the Third Reich decide 
this was not a viable option. We're never going to get enough plutonium or uranium, process it, which is sort of like very newly discovered, uh, discovered parts of the periodic table. And, you know, where are we going to find it? It was un kind of unclear at that point, like, where's, where's all the uranium in the world? Because there is some. By the way, for the record, it tends to be right in the middle of continental shelves. It's a place where matter has had time to sort of sit for a very long time undisturbed, and it kind of, in essence, coalesces into these very, very large atoms. So places like Central Canada, Central Asia, those sorts of places will have uranium deposits there or plutonium. They're both very similarly, very large atoms. The larger the atom, the more unstable it is, which is why if you're going to rip apart the smallest atom, hydrogen, which has an atomic value of one, atomic weight of one, then because that is so hard to split, the release of energy is even bigger. So that is why in the 1950s, you start hearing about the H-bomb, hydrogen bombs. So yeah, Germany didn't carry the one, got into trouble mathematically and went, nah, that's going to be something that's not going to help us win the war. Meanwhile, the mathematics had been done correctly in Britain and America. It was also obviously helped by the fact that the Nazis had managed to scare away a lot of their top scientists, many of whom were Jewish. So yes, they were able to help with the creation of the nuclear bomb, which was called the Manhattan Project, which was done in complete secrecy in America, but using scientists from all over the world. And the thing is, the Manhattan Project is the single most expensive project, if you take into account inflation, scientific endeavor in all of history. That's how much energy they put into it, no pun intended. And so by 1945, they were able to test their first nuclear detonations which they did in Nevada, and they realized they had something that was absolutely viable. And then we come to one of the hardest conversations about World War II, because while we can all agree the Nazis were bad, and to be blunt, the Imperial Japanese weren't much better, they had their own versions of death camps. They tortured prisoners of war to death. They caused all kinds of horrific crimes against humanity in China, for example. They weren't the good guys. But what do we do about nuclear bombs? And this is, this is where I can almost feel sometimes sort of like social media of people flexing for their keypads. So I want to be clear. I don't want anybody to die. I think civilian deaths are absolutely disgusting and despicable. But unfortunately, there can be little argument against the dropping of nuclear bombs on Japan was the least bad option. How on earth can I say that, Jim? To give you an idea, Roundabout. I mean, the numbers are still disputed, but round about 100,000 people died in Hiroshima and about 90,000 people died in Nagasaki. And I'll be coming on to the aftermath in a bit. But the thing is this, Japan in 1945 had never been successfully invaded ever. By the summer of 1945, the, the Axis powers had been knocked out of World War II. Italy had changed sides to the Allies, and Germany and Austria had been defeated. They're at peace. The only place left is Japan. Now, Japan is still hanging on in China. They're still hanging on in places like Vietnam and Hong Kong. They hadn't lost all their lands yet. Most of the fighting had been on tiny specks of islands across the Pacific. You know, most famously, something like Iwo Jima. But the point is that the 
the sheer death rate of largely American soldiers every time they're capturing one of these small areas was horrific, eye-watering. When they finally got to a Japanese home island, Okinawa, it was one of the highest ratios of death for American soldiers ever. So they came up with Operation Olympic. This was the plan to invade the main islands of Japan, like Honshu, for example. And you can see the plans that they had. We're talking about multiple aircraft carrier battle groups. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of Marines and soldiers ready to land on the beaches. They knew that they were going to face the stiffest of stiff resistance as they went further and further towards Tokyo. But here's the thing. We now know what the Japanese had waiting for them, and the Americans underestimated how much stuff was lying in wait for them. There can be no doubt, let's call the death toll of, of the two nuclear bombs on Japan as 200,000. There can be no doubt that more than double those people would have died as the Americans sort of tried to land on Japan. Maybe Japan does successfully defend them on the beaches, in which case America would continue its conventional bombing. And it is worth pointing out that the fire bombing of Tokyo no nuclear weapons there, just conventional incendiary devices killed more than 90,000 people. So basically, it caused as much death as a nuclear bomb. Plus, the idea was to try and starve the civilian population into submission. Anything to try and end this war. And the problem was, Japan wasn't surrendering. It already had an opportunity to do so when Hitler died. So why not surrender, Japan? And the other thing that's worth remembering for people saying we shouldn't have dropped the bomb is they weren't dropped on the same day. There were three days in between, and deliberately there were three days in between to give Japan enough time to say we surrender. When the US ended World War II by dropping atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Indeed, we actually have one memo from a senior Japanese officer after the bombing of Hiroshima, basically stating that the weapon wasn't that, that great in terms of its damage or, or, or lethality, which is a horrible thing to say after that much death. The other thing, and let's be showing how cynical the Americans were, they deliberately chose Nagasaki and Hiroshima because they hadn't been bombed. They wanted to see how devastational these new bombs were. So, if you're saying the Americans shouldn't have dropped the bomb in World War II, I hear you, that makes you a very human human, but I want to know how you would have personally stopped the war which would have led to less death. This is why, and I go back to it, it's the least bad option. It's still a bad option, but it's the least bad option. There is, of course, the argument that the pictures that went around the world of the sheer devastation that one bomb could cause led to the Cold War in the sense of it not being a hot war. It made everybody realize that if I did gather together all the troops that we did in D-Day, for example, or at Leningrad or Stalingrad, well, now I can drop a nuclear weapon on your army of 100,000 and they're all dead. Forget about cities. If you have large concentrations of troops, I can just wipe them out in one morning. So that was terrible. But there, there are some, so, so there is an idea that maybe nuclear weapons stopped an all-out nuclear war. That's why we haven't had World War Three yet. You know, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this online. But, you know, I'm trying to be as open and open-minded as I possibly can be on this. There are some interesting things. We all know that there is this radiation that comes from, from, from nuclear detonations. And 
there are horrible, horrible images of people basically seared, being disintegrated. They've been turned literally into soot, and that soot has been blasted onto walls. It's almost like somebody's shadow has been captured on a wall. That exists. Okay, that is horrible and terrible and awful. There are, please don't do a search for them. I'm trying to let you sleep tonight. There are terrible photos of civilians and the horrific radiation burns they received. They survived the initial shockwave. They survived the initial blast, but they are still blistered uh, with the radiation that was blasted out by these things. However, what was interesting is that for a few years after, it seems, and I'm getting this information from Columbia University, very reputable source, that it does seem that the total death count was round about, so I'm saying initial blast, probably about 200,000. Final death count is about a quarter of a million, so another 50,000. Whether those people, have, but this is where it gets contentious, were those people just not dying in the blast, but dying of their injuries later? Is this actually from radiation sickness? It is very, very hard to tell, because of course people had never experienced this anymore, and obviously records weren't that great in a nuked city. So there's lots of gray area here. But what they do know is for about five years after, there was a 47% increase in leukemia in people. In other words, people were getting bone cancer. However, overall, all other types of cancers, there was an increase, but only by 10%. And this leveled off after about five, six years. Again, there were some women with birth defects, but it wasn't like Hiroshima. In theory, you'd think that the half-life would be for centuries and nobody can live in Hiroshima or Nagasaki today which is less than a century after the bomb was dropped. But those cities are now thriving again, and nobody is dying of radiation sickness only 75 years after the detonation. So it does show you that there's some, you know, there's some things we still don't understand about the physics of all this stuff. Now, my grandfather, who served in the US Navy, he remembers being briefed. They were all told that there was this game-changing bomb. And the thing he always remembered is, is two things. First of all, they were told that it was so powerful, it might crack the surface of the earth. That's what everybody was worried about. And it would be as hot as the temperatures of the surface of the sun. But the other thing he remembers is how nobody believed them. Everyone was so used to sort of like propaganda. And this sounded so ridiculous. Like, oh, what, you've invented a death ray, have you? And the feeling of sheer horror when the guys finally got like newspapers showing what actually happened. So that's a, a, a real person sort of there at the time. But it does show you that because of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, now we've got about 10 countries in the world who have nuclear weapons. This is largely what the UN Security Council's made up of. Basically, everybody on that, well, why does Britain have a seat there? They don't have an empire anymore. You're right. But Britain does have nukes. And so, yeah, you need to think about France and Britain and China and Russia and America. But also there are some countries that have more recently got it, like North Korea. They're never going to be on the UN Security Council, but Pakistan and India. It is still unofficial, but everybody knows Israel has them. This is the tensions and problems that exist today. Now, there's been a massive amount of disarmament. Loads of these nuclear weapons don't exist anymore. They've been decommissioned. I can't stand idly by and watch us stumble into the madness of possible nuclear destruction. And so I've come to a decision. I'm going to do what our governments have been unwilling or unable to do. Effective immediately, I'm going to rid our planet of all nuclear weapons. There's still 
thousands of them, and I mean that literally, still out there. And it makes the world sort of like pause for thought in terms of what's going on. And you do get this horror. You are shown the devastation of nuclear strikes in Fallout. This wasn't the world I wanted, but it was the one I found myself in. This time I'm ready. Because I know war. War never changes. You know, in this bit, they're not being silly or, or sort of tongue in cheek. They are showing you that, well, particularly in Fallout 3, which is around Washington, D.C., you have a nuked capital of America. And that is a, a hard pill to swallow. It is a salient reminder of what can go wrong if we don't talk to each other and we don't keep going. So, look, something different this time round. Really hope you enjoyed that one. Might be the wrong phrase, but I hope you found it interesting. As always, I'm at Jem Daducci on Twitter. That's how James got through to me. Hi, again, but I will talk to people other than people called James. And also, please, you know, do click subscribe. You know, that's how he, he found us. He's now subscribed, etc. So you too can subscribe. Although, James, shout out to you. I haven't seen your review on Apple Podcasts yet. So wherever you're listening to your podcast or this podcast, please give us a review. It helps the algorithm spread the love and spread the word. And I ask you, tell one of your mates, oh, there's this really interesting podcast. I think you'd like it too. Grab their phone from them. Get them subscribed to the podcast. Thank you very much for all your help there. That's it for Fallout. And I'm going to say there'll be another podcast coming soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.